You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. Well, my usual co-host, David Leach, is still overseas, so I'll be running this solo today But uh, for this episode. But we do have two very special interviews for you. Uh, one is Greg Bourne from the Climate Council about that organisation's report this week or this last week on transport and the um, issues and the opportunities for Australia to finally tackle its transport emissions. We've heard a lot about electricity, but transport emissions are going up and we need to do something about it. We also talked to John O'Brien from Deloitte, who have done a really quite interesting report uh, pointing out that now really is the, um, the time for renewables and the case for renewables has never been stronger. Before we get into those, just a couple of observations about other things that happened this week. It was interesting to see that report from Endeavour Environmental on Friday pointing out that Australia's total emissions have never been higher. For the third year in a row, they have risen. They will likely, well, they will almost certainly rise to a new record uh, next year or in this current financial year. And Australia is on track on current trajectories to be 1 billion tonnes over its Paris climate target for 2030. That is really quite extraordinary. Uh, Electricity emissions, as I mentioned just a moment ago, are going down, but they're going up pretty much everywhere else, and particularly in transport, and most notably in the diesel sector, where, of course, the diesel use for heavy industry is heavily subsidised by the government. But, of course, according to the government, they do not have fossil fuel subsidies, so, ha, there you go. Um... The other thing I've noticed, I think um, South Australia has been pretty interesting. Over the last week, on several occasions, more than 100% of its demand has been met by wind and solar. Um, it's been Wind's been going very strong. But solar has also been going strong on about four or five different occasions over the last week. I've counted that uh, solar, the combination of rooftop solar and what is now Australia's biggest utility-scale plant, the Bangala Solar Farm near Port Augusta, have been between them providing more than 40% of the state's total power output and between about 40 and 50% of the state's total demand. So really quite an interesting development there and I think we're going to see more of it. If you think that Bangala is going to be more than twice its current size, we are going to see the Talem Bend um, large-scale solar farm being completed soon. We've got Sanjeev Gupta's first solar farm being built early next year. That's 280 megawatts. That's even bigger than Bangala plus another one gigawatt that he's planning, plus storage, you're starting to see a whole new um, chapter, I think, in the transformation of South Australia's renewables. And um, I've written a story about that for a new economy today that you might be interested in looking at. But look, let's get to the first of our interviews. It's Greg Bourne. He's a climate counsellor. He has also been, some of you may remember, the president of BP Australia. He's been the head of WWF Australia. He's also been the chairman of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, uh, working very closely with uh, whichever federal environment or energy minister is in place. So he really is in a unique position to give a perspective of um, this particular 
um, subject, which is transport and the transition to electric vehicles, but also just a better way and a more sort of holistic way of thinking about our transport options. We tend to be sort of saying, well, internal combustion engines and electric vehicles, but what this report really points out is that we need to think about these things in even broader terms. It's not just the source of power, it's how we create um, the whole transport sector, how we think about our investments in infrastructure, thinking about not just cars, but public transports, walking and cycling, and not just build, building free, freeways all over the place. Anyway, here's the interview. It's Greg Bourne from the Climate Council. Greg Bourne, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Hi, Giles. So the Climate Council has put out a transport report, and look, like many other reports, it's talked about, well, it's pointed out how Australia is dragging behind the rest of the world in electric vehicles and the need for various incentives and, and, and what have you. But look, this one seems to go further because it's really talking about the need to think about transport completely differently from, you know, from the way we think about our roads to the way we think about our public transport system, all the way down to walking and cycling. Yeah. That's right, Giles. Look, the key, the key thing for us is this conversation about climate change and emissions has been dominated by the electricity sector, rightly so, for the last you know year and even longer, really, uh, culminating in the ditching of the neg, um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago and so on. Um, but from a climate change point of view, you've got to think about all of the emissions, and we wanted now to point out that transport emissions second largest amount of emissions after the electricity sector, 100 million tonnes a year, has got to be dealt with. And the only way to do it, it's got to, you've got to do it comprehensively. Yes, and you talk about a couple of different things. I mean, what actually, point, go back to those stats, um, I think Endeavour Environment put out um, some statistics on Friday pointing out that Australians, uh, Australia's emissions are at a record level the uh, electricity sector emissions are actually going down thanks to the renewables that we're getting into the system and presumably will go down further. Transport emissions are going up, um, driven largely in part uh, by, by diesel. But, um, but your report talks, let's think about electric vehicles now and the need for more renewables to ensure that uh, when we do connect to the grid with, uh, with electric vehicles, you want that to be powered by as much clean energy as possible. Yeah, look, that, that's right. You know, the, the, there's a transformation going on uh, throughout the world in the energy systems. For some people, it might seem to be too slow. For some people, it might seem to be too fast. But it's happening. And we can see that the world of electrification will come on, driven by uh, renewable sources in many places. In other countries, it you know, may be driven partially by nuclear and partially by hydro. But this transport revolution is coming on, with electrification being the key. You know, we've seen a lot of stuff with regard to the regionalization of um, power supply, small power supply, microgrids and so on. We will eventually see excess renewable energy being created. We'll see that slimming, you know, streaming into the, the transport system. And it's not a matter of waiting until it happens. It's a matter of laying down the infrastructure now, whether it be passenger transport vehicles, whether it be uh, you know, vehicles of electric buses, powering trams, um, and eventually into the, you know, the heavy goods vehicles as well. We'll see that happening. But it's one of the things that governments have got to do, state and federal and territory governments, is plan and actually begin to lay down the infrastructure needed so you can progressively bring in this, this new way of transporting ourselves around the country and indeed around the world. 
Why is it then that Australia is lagging behind the rest of the world in electric vehicles? And from your discussions with stakeholders, and I'm thinking about people in state and federal um, parliament, what's your sense of the will to try and catch up? Um, Giles, you know, sort of going back to my earlier career with BP, um, you know, back in Australia in 99 and, you know, 2000, around that sort of time, you could see the resistance to change, particularly driven originally by the uh, motor vehicle manufacturers, and they didn't want to change. The refiners didn't want to change either. Uh, The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries didn't want to change, and so that lobbying pressure stymied change and indeed you know tragically we've lost most of our car industry really and yet we could have had one which is looking first towards hybrids and then towards uh, EVs. The resistance to change is actually enormous and we still see that resistance to change. So EVs coming into the the country right now you, you, I think it was something like 5,000 were bought last year. Oh, not even that. Two and a half thousand in Australia, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we can double it to five thousand next year. But but really, this this resistance to change has been the one that's there. And then you see it through the fuel standards. You know, sort of again going back to my BB days, we fought like mad to make sure that we could. You know, all lead was taken out of petrol. But it was a hard graft effort. We fought like mad to bring the uh, fuel standards up people didn't want to do it. Even now, you know, our fuel quality standards are pretty much the worst in the OECD world. We really don't have any uh, fuel emission standards and we don't have any fuel economy standards. What do we do here in Australia? We stick a sticker on the car window and say, look how good it is or how bad it is, but we don't actually do do anything. (laughs) And on top of that, we import 90% of our oil needs, which um, from an energy security need is just well, reckless, I would have thought. Look, this is one of those things that's happened um, over a period of time, and like this, the old thing about the the frog in boiling water. You know, you just you know bring it up to the boiler, and suddenly there's this fundamental change. So, yeah, if you go back thirty years and you go back twenty years, you know, we were producing most of what we needed, but now we import, you know, really a very large proportion of what we need. So, thinking forwards. You know, we can see the renewable energy world coming in. We can see uh, renewable energy storage, that infrastructure changing. And then how now do we think about the transport system? As I said earlier, you know, we the transport system in Australia puts out 100 million tonnes of CO2 per annum. It's going to build up to, according to estimates, 112 million tonnes by 2030. And yet we're not laying the infrastructure down to turn the corner that we need to if we're going to reduce emissions and begin to ameliorate climate change. Okay, then, so what are some of the things that you would like to see done, you know, at, um, at local level, at state level or federal level? Well, I think the, the first thing to, that's come to me really more than anything else is the states are going to lead this. Um, I <laughs> Perhaps it's just because of the frustrations of the many years of working with the federal government and trying to get them to lead, that the states are genuinely going to uh, lead this. And we are seeing this, we're seeing this happening in Victoria, the recent announcements with regard to uh, road corridors and so on, but eventually rail corridors going on. We're seeing this in the ACT. Um, that's where it has to, to, to come from. Equally, we are seeing some, you know, tarmac roads being laid down, which typically will, you know, attract 
more cars. Now, what type of cars will they be? You know, will they be EVs or will they still be the, the ordinary type? But indeed, in the end, I think the states are going to be driving uh, the changes that we need to see. You've been, as you mentioned, you work with BP for a long time. Um, you um, have also worked in the renewables industry as chair of the Australian en Renewable Energy Agency. You work very closely with the federal government. You have worked for environmental groups. Have you ever seen a time when the policy dis or the political discussion around renewables and climate change and what have you has ever been so low? Look, the, the, the discussion, I think, has been a disaster. Um, I remember um, leading the Renewable Energy Action Agenda, um, you know, way back in, I think it was 2002. And, and that was under, obviously, a coalition uh, government. And yeah, but, but basically it was, yeah, we'll, we'll, do the, we'll do the efforts to make it look like it's okay. Um, you, you can go through a whole storyline, the whole history line of, you know, were people really thinking uh, things were going to change or not going to change. The thing that frustrates me probably more than anything else in this debate is anyone who is looking at the renewables industry on a worldwide basis and anyone who's looking at the shift in the technologies is beginning to bet on these businesses as winners. They are really going to do that. That's going to happen whether Australia embraces the technologies or doesn't embrace the technologies. Um, and yet we seem to be stuck in the slow lane at um, the current federal level anyway, where it is sort of looking backwards. And th there's the old um, picture of, you know, are you a person walking into the future facing the past and thinking that's what it needs to always look like? Or are you a person walking into the future facing forwards and seeing what you could make it be? That's where we seem to have a complete difference in the politics at the moment. We need to be facing forwards as Australia. And, and that's it. It comes down to this sort of this, this opportunity and the risk of missing this opportunity, because I think if Australia does this, miss this opportunity, then it's going to become, well, eventually an economic backwater. Yeah, Giles, look, I think, you know, we, we brought out the, the, the transport report basically to say um, there's 185 million tonnes per annum going up from the electricity sector. There's 100 million tonnes uh, going up from the transport sector. But we will also look, obviously, at the other parts of the industrial sector. And a lot of folks uh, in the industrial sector are just saying, oh, woe is me, unless we have coal, unless we have baseload power stations. You know, you know, we, we can't do steel, we can't do aluminium. We can... It's got to change into thinking of, if we put in the amount of renewable energy that we in Australia could possibly do, and then think of how do we use that energy, how, how do we, a combination of store that energy, how do we batch process using that energy, uh, and how do we add value to the things that we can do? What are the export industries we can get into, or change, or dominate, or um, disrupt the way things are being done, because we have got such a landmass, such an, a, a, a huge amount of solar and wind possibilities here. What could we do if we only harnessed our imagination and tried to do it, rather than, oh, I wish we could just have another coal mine, another coal-fired power station, and do what we did in the 50s and the 60s and 70s. No, look, we're nearly in 2020. We need to be looking at the 30s yeah. and the 40s, and how can we win? And we've had enough blueprints um, for that. I mean, just uh, just over the last couple of weeks and couple of months, we've had these uh, renewable hydrogen blueprints provided by the CSIRO, by Arena, by um, Alan Finkel's Hydrogen Strategy Group. Um, the, the ideas are there. The opportunities are laid down in front of us. 
Yeah, look, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, sort of hydrogen, I am sure, is going to be in the mix. You know, the energy density, uh, the ability to carry power, um, the ability to store power, hydrogen will be in that mix, no doubt about it. And we will see biofuels as well. We'll see other things. So you're quite right. <clears throat> you know, CSIRO can see you know, how we could go forward. Finkel could see how we can go forward. It is a matter of trying to get the debate at, at the federal level anyway, looking forwards rather than looking backwards. And maybe that will come about. However, where my optimism comes in is at the state level. Um, my, my own view is the state's very, very clearly know that the jobs are won and lost in your state. The investment occurs or doesn't in your state. There's a competitive dynamic between states and between territories. Uh, and they are looking a bit longer, I think, really, than the federal government. And, and in, in essence, you know, at the federal level, they don't actually manufacture anything. Yeah, maybe a bit of media stuff, but they don't <laughs> manufacture much. And and indeed, this is where the states have got a real, a real skin in the game. You know, it's it's their plant which will close down because it's old technology, but the new plant that starts up in their state is because they have decided to embrace the future. Exactly. In fact, the, the lower down in government you get, and even down to the sort of consumers, um, you see the more engagement um, with these technologies. If you think about households, then small businesses, then bigger businesses, and then, as you mentioned, the local and the state governments. What gets you excited um, in technology development at the moment? Look, I, I think really more than anything else, it's the renewable energy plus storage plus the integration into uh, the electric system, electricity system and the microgrids. And you then begin to start seeing how, not, not just for electricity into the NEM, that's not, you know, that is important, of course, but how does electricity then, um, you know, sort of effectively freely available from sunlight and wind get stored? Now it begins to have a bit of a cost to it. How does it get into transformation possibilities into manufacturing, into uh, ore beneficiation, uh, how can we possibly build uh, an export industry around different things. And, and, and that to me is where the CSIRO's visiting, um, you know, envisaging the future, the hydrogen technology looking at the future, uh, that's what excites me. Uh, what frustrates me is it seems to be all too slow at times and there are too many naysayers about what could be done. Um, but what excites me very definitely is I can see the technologies all there now. I can see how they link together. I can see now how the prices are coming down and the economies of scale manufacturing that are coming along because of the global effort in this space is really enormous. Question then for us in Australia is we will we let this opportunity bypass us because there's plenty of others who want to have the investment in their countries or will we embrace it? And that's exactly the question where we have been. Look, Greg, it's been a fantastic discussion. And um, well, I think we'll probably leave on that note. And um, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Giles. And that was Greg Bourne from the Climate Council. Uh, fascinating to hear his insights there, uh, not just on the source of power, as I mentioned before, but also on the broader issues within the transport sector and the broader issues within renewables. Greg is also working on a um, few renewable projects of his own, so um, really has an interesting perspective. I should also point out, just take an opportunity to thank our sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watches. Um, both Solaray and What Watches have been sponsors of this podcast right from the start, so really do appreciate their support. 
Our next interview is with John O'Brien from Deloitte, one of the big four accounting firms. They put out a regular report and update on the state of renewables in the market, in the global market. What I really found interesting about this one was its conclusion that there has never been a stronger case for renewables as now. And they make some really interesting points, not just about the progress of technology on costs, but also the case for storage, um, also the um, sort of getting rid of some of those common myths that we hear about renewables and wind and solar in particular, and also in Europe. Um, what, you, what you'll hear in the interview is also is pointing out with Denmark, and I'd just like to reinforce this point, Denmark, um, all the critics like to say that the countries and the areas with renewables always have high, uh, higher electricity prices than anywhere else. Well, often it's a historical thing, and with Denmark in particular, it's historical because they use electricity as a source of revenue and taxation, and if actually strip away those um, exterior um, tax um, tax um, devices, the cost of electricity is actually amongst the lowest in Europe. And in Germany also we've seen the price of wholesale electricity fall by half um, since the implementation of the Energiewende, and um, that's been a great benefit to their businesses. Anyway, on with the interview. This is John O'Brien from Deloitte. John O'Brien, Renewable Energy Lead at Deloitte. Um, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. This report that Deloitte has released, um, it says that the case for renewables has never been stronger. That's the last sentence of your conclusion. Very briefly, why is that? So it's, it's a global report. Um, it has uh, absolute sort of application to the Australian market as well. Um, and it looks at renewables from, from two different points of view. And it kind of just comes up showing that, um, you know, re renewables is really just becoming really mainstream. And it's just, you know, th there's no stopping it. And it's, it looks at it from the supply side. So what's actually happening in the renewables industry. And then it's also looking at what's happening on the demand side and from, you know, from all, all sorts of areas, why the pull of renewables is, is a, again, unstoppable. And the interesting bit for me is actually how it's addressing, you know, all the popular discussion about renewables. It's kind of knocking over all those arguments, um, and it's, um, and, you know, maybe maybe we'll come to that. But it's just, it's kind of just just showing how renewables really is is going to be, you know, there there is no choice but renewables going forward. It's really interesting, yes, and it does actually say that it is now the um, energy source of choice. Um, let's go through those supply and demand. Let, let, let's tackle supply first, and it's interesting there. It's talking about it's already reaching price and performance parity on and off the grid, and yep. um, that's quite important. Um, costs of solar are falling, and Australia is one of the lowest um, costs of um, solar um, PV. Um, likewise, it's also it also notes that it's, the, it's probably the country with the lowest co cost of solar solar thermal. Um, which I guess is an assumed cost because we haven't quite built our first very large scale solar thermal plant, but we're hoping to do so within the next two years. Indeed, and yeah, and that, that will be on the, the published data on the, the solar reserve project. So hopefully we see that get built. Um, so yeah, so on a, on a price side of things, um, you know, it's just continuing to drop. Um, and actually, you know, there was a very good report I think you did yesterday on all about the Victorian sort of wind auction, you know, and we're seeing, you know, wind at $50 a megawatt and, you know, solar, you know, heading, heading south of $50. Um, so it's, you know, it's really 
getting down there being very price competitive. So one of the the interesting aspects, so again, taking the global view um, was, yeah, it's it's clearly the lowest cost new build. So if you're building new generation, um, that there's, you know, kind of it, it it's it, it's definitely the lowest cost. Um, but where, where I think it's getting really interesting is it's also approaching parity with the marginal cost of some existing plants. So some of the older plants, um, uh, and actually, so it, it's just, you know, just if you want cheaper electricity, you're going to look for a renewable source. And that's, you know, it's not quite there on the second bit um, in, in many countries, and, uh, uh, and, but it's coming and, and the prices are continuing to go down. And there's some, there's some great technology stuff that we've had a look at um, that's, that's driving some of that. Well, that's right. Um, yeah, you, you talk about perovskite and solar PV and you talk about 3D printing for wind turbines and, um, and um, wind turbine um, you know, parts for uh, wind turbines. Um, yep. Um, really quite interesting. And, and the perovskite for the solar PV, which we could see as early as 2019, could indeed actually just sort of you know, give another quantum shift in the, uh, in the cost of that technology. Absolutely. And um, I actually, I mean, in uh, uh, Melbourne today and uh, this morning, I was down at Monash University at, at um, the materials, um, Monash Mater- Energy Materials Institute, and it's they're doing some fantastic work on perovskite. Um, they won't be in the market in 2019. It's probably uh, some people in the UK are probably, from a commercialization point of view, a bit ahead. But, you know, they're looking at, you know, of efficiencies heading up to, you know, 40%. So, um, you know, where we've, we've got some shown uh, efficiencies of you know mid twenties now, but it's uh, they're heading heading pretty quickly that way, and that's just going to take solar down another level. I mean, it's not you know it's not going to come it's it's not going to be widespread straight away. But if you look another five or ten years out, this price path is continuing, and there's no you know, and it's just going to become unbeatable. Yeah, but one of the myths I, I that you guys sort of um, blow apart, and um, I'm quite happy to see so, is about the renewables and the impact it has on wholesale prices. Mm-hmm. Um, points to Germany, for instance, which it says uh, wholesale prices actually more than halved over the past decade, and it also points out to Den- in, in Denmark, and it says that if you strip out the taxes um, and um, other fees which are attached to de- Danish um, energy bills, um, Denmark actually has the one of the lowest costs of electricity in Europe, which is against all the um, yep. all the demonising of renewables, sort of saying that also you know Germany and Denmark actually have the highest, but um, this points in the other direction. Yeah, and and absolutely, and and it's I mean it, that comes down to marginal cost of operating. So, you know, once once you built the stuff, it's um, it doesn't cost much to to um, to create electricity through a through a turbine or a PV cell. And um, there's other there's some other figures in there also about sort of the US states and that the. the the correlation between the U.S. states with the highest penetration of renewables and uh, are, I think it's something like 75% of the, of the ones with high penetration of renewables actually have lower energy costs than the U.S. average. And, and you know, there's all sorts of variables in that, but it's just yeah, the fact that the myth that renewables creates high pricing is just it's it's not the case and, and even if it was a while ago it's really not the case now because new, new renewables coming on are just the cheapest electricity you can get so yes i like the quote that you've got in the report saying the lawrence berkeley national laboratory estimates that once the united states reaches denmark's penetration level of 40 to 50 percent renewables some states will see the dawn of quote energy too cheap to meter unquote so, yes. Well, and yes, I, mean, I, I think that's a really interesting concept. I and mean, we've been doing a little bit of work on that 
Um, so you think about telcos. So um, uh, you know your your mobile phone bill you know, five ten years ago, you know it cost you a fortune. If you you know you went overseas, it cost you a fortune. But now what are we doing? We're all signing up to unlimited data and unlimited calls. So is that the future of energy? So actually, we, you sign up with somebody for unlimited energy. Um, how far I don't know how far away it is, but I think it's I think that's part of the future. That's interesting because we heard quite a lot about those sort of models, um, different models, but we haven't heard so much just recently. But um, anyway, look, you also talk about grid integration, and I guess this sort of conforms with what um, Australian energy market operator is telling us through the integrated system plan, which is basically they're catering for scenarios of between say fifty and seventy percent renewable energy by twenty thirty, yep. and they don't really see a problem in it. Um, it's just really just a matter of planning and um, and and integration. I mean, the fact that there's that much wind and solar is not a problem per se. It's all about planning and um, and and um, and dealing with it. Yeah, absolutely. And and almost as the the scale and the penetration increases, that that helps in some ways because it's you've got more variability across the network of you know solar and wind and when it's happening. I mean, the other the other thing, obviously, a key part of that is is storage, and that's coming getting a lot cheaper and. You know, I think we quote a, a number that, um, you know, lithium batteries, we all know, are getting a much cheaper, but 80% drop in price since 2010, and, and that's not stopping. So that's, you know, that'll that'll continue going. The whole pumped hydro sort of discussion at the moment, I think there's, we're going to see a lot of sort of smaller pumped hydro. So, you know, with increased penetration, you have more diversity of when of sun and winds, you with cheaper storage, uh, you've got got um you know sort of more reliability um and uh yeah and, and actually there's the one of our conclusions is that as renewables increases um it actually strengthens grid resilience and reliability um and it's providing additional sort of grid services as well so you know if you look at the combination um both in australia but also elsewhere in the world um it's just actually improving how the grid works and yes there is change and and that's that's fine but it's it's not it's not getting a you know the the energy trilemma of, um uh, that has been on the front page so much in the last couple of years uh renewable energy can fit very nicely into that well, exactly. Yes, I mean, yes. Renewable renewable energy is the solution to the, the, the this dilemma, rather Indeed. than the um, yep. rather than the counterparty. Yeah, and I think that should have been the headline of this report: is you know, renewable energy <laughs> solves energy trilemma. So uh, that's that's what we should have said. So. Let's go to the demand side of the equation, and you talk here about something called smart renewable cities. Tell us what they are and why that's an exciting idea. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it. it it's it's a bit more than just sort of buying renewables for for cities. So it's it's all about so smart there's, there's smart cities and um, and that's all about sort of data analytics and, and making cities function more effectively um, by using all the data that that is available. Um, one of the key enablers is that of that are sensors which are incredibly cheap, little you know remote sensors, um, incredibly cheap, and you can go and put you know ten thousand around a city that will give you all sorts of data about you know traffic movement or air quality so there's that's there's a whole sort of you know there's a whole world of smart city stuff going on which is really interesting you link that with um the energy picture for that city and and renewables and um and smart grids and demand management and virtual power plants and and that's that's kind of the concept of a, a sustainable um a smart renewable city um so it, it's kind of putting smart cities together with with energy, which of course you know there's clearly a big overlap there. 
Um, mm. and, and there's plenty happening, um, you know, and there's, there's bits and pieces happening in different areas around Australia. But um, uh, one of the examples, I, I mean, and in India, there's 100 smart cities, you know, is the, is the government's uh, push at the moment. The one I really like is actually um, Penn Station in Denver which is near sort of a, a new airport area uh, and all sorts of, you know, kind of building it from the ground up. Um, how do you, how do you, if you're starting again and you, you've got a retrofitting is one thing, but if you actually start building a new suburb or a new area, new industrial zone, then I think there's a, a fantastic opportunity. And, you know, maybe there's some, some developments in Western Sydney or in Northern Melbourne or something like that, where you could actually really do some incredible stuff and deliver things more cheaply and you know make the communities more livable mm. the other key elements of the demand you talk about community energy both often on the grid and the concept of sort of sharing um, lo locally based renewables and storage and the sharing of energy yep. you also talk about the corporate demand and the level of corporate involvement and we're starting to see that in australia too with yes, the very much so. of the world yep, yep. um you know telstra and um cu company united breweries and um, sun metal zinc refinery and um, a whole lot of others um, it seems to me that everywhere you look, you've got individual households, you've got corporates, you've got communities, you've got cities. Um, the only people who don't seem to be getting it at the moment is the politicians. And maybe it doesn't matter. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll just carry on regardless. Well, well, actually, yeah. I mean, to, to some extent. So, you know, there's obviously there's a bit of chat about the politics. Um, and what's... Um, so I think policy certainty, what policy certainty will help do is drive the prices further down more quickly. What it's, what policy is not going to do, and you know, to some extent, e either way, um, it, it's not going to affect how we, we move forward uh, that much. It may accelerate or decelerate. It may help drive prices down even more than they are already. But from what we're seeing in, we're working with some really large companies on corporate PPA type stuff. We're working with some really big developers on the other side. Um, we've been working on a number of schemes where can we actually aggregate a whole lot of smaller industry to get the benefit that the big big guys are getting and we're you know we're seeing 30 percent discounts by going to a corporate ppa um from you know from big organizations so you, know, you can save a lot of money with a bit of careful thinking around how you source and share and and store and use your energy so so you know that's that driving force and you know the numbers we can quote in the report there's you know two-thirds of the fortune 100 have renewable energy targets and um, one of the ones I really like, so the Renew RE100 is, is actually 140 um, multinationals uh, run by the, the climate group. Yeah, the, the, the RE100 is basically a list of companies um, yep. which are going for 100% renewable in, um, electricity. Yes. Absolutely, yep. So And there's 140 of them. Um, but what I think, which I hadn't seen actually until we, uh, the research for this report, is that a third of those have now implemented 100% renewables through their supply chain. So it's not just them, it's actually anyone who wants to sell to them also has to commit to that. And that's that starts driving yes. behaviour all the way down. Um, uh, and so, I mean, in, in Australia, Mars, who's part of the RE100, um, you know, that they did a corporate PPA for what, 50 megawatts for the Kayamal, Kayamal solar farm in Western Victoria. That's, you know, that's come down from the top, from head office, wherever that might be. Um, but it's... 
yeah, you've got the Venus, yeah, Venus, possibly. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that one. Um, but uh, the you know, so not only have you got these multinationals you know, signing up and just going, we're doing it. You're then getting them to put a whole lot of supply chains and pressure across everywhere, and that's you know, we're seeing you know, what is it, the figure? Um, so in year to date, to the end of July, there's there was 7.2 gigawatts of corporate PPAs signed across 28 markets. You know, so it's just it's, you know, it's just flying. Um, yep. Well, John, um, John O'Brien from Deloitte, thank you very much for joining us. No problem at all. I'm very happy to uh, that renewable energy solves the energy trilemma. <laughs> you got that headline in right at the end. Well yeah. <laughs> Thanks, John. No problem. Take care. That was John O'Brien from Deloitte. Um, fascinating, to, fascinating to hear some of the key people in the business community talking about this transition in this way. And I think that's one of the things that we do forget about the um, about the debate at the moment. We're really starting to see the political ideologues being isolated to one side. We've seen the big business lobbies now scrambling to try and get some sort of repair or some part of the neg in place amongst the state governments. They're talking to the state and liberal governments about that. They're talking to federal labour in the assumption or even probably the hope that uh, federal labour get elected next year because there just seems to be absolutely no chance whatsoever that this coalition government listen to the current prime minister and his current ministers actually get to lift a finger to do anything about climate change or make a serious effort to put something serious together on energy policy. And we're starting to see, uh, John O'Brien was telling me afterwards, that um, the level of interest from the corporate community in corporate PPAs is really quite extraordinary. So we've started to see some of the big ones already move, the Wayala Steelworks, Blue Scope Steel, the zinc refiners up in Queensland, Sun Metals, plus a whole bunch of other corporates and banks and other companies going 100% renewables. Um, he says that that's moving quite quickly, and that's going to pose an interesting problem for the big utilities in Australia because um, however fast or slow they move, I think the the corporates are going to take it away from them. What we're going to see is this massive shift in load from the utilities to these other intermediaries and these new um, retailers, or these people putting together these deals with these wind and solar farms. And um, I just think that's going to be a really interesting thing to keep tabs on. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Um, we'll be back next week with another series of interviews. And um, David Leach is, I can see you on the horizon. He's coming back and he'll rejoin the podcast very soon. Thank you for listening. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Wattwatchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.